So I turned off my recorder and I said, okay, John, we'll leave it at that. And I went walking through the law library doors and I heard this voice behind me saying, 21 years I've been waiting for justice. And John was finally talking. And he's standing there looking up at me saying, I pray for Veronica Gearin. It's, it's really hard to know what to do. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's Ireland's most infamous criminal, but at 68 years of age, John Gilligan has found himself banged up abroad. As he faces Christmas in a cell in a Spanish prison, I'm talking to Conor Fian, chief reporter with INM, about Gilligan's life and crimes. He tells me about his run-ins with the infamous criminal and about the day he witnessed him go from smug to devastated when he lost his battle with the Criminal Assets Bureau. I'm Nicola Talent, and this is Crime World. Connor, you and I are going to or have been involved in a documentary that's coming out on Monday on Virgin Media. It'll be on the player as well after that, called John Gilligan, The End of the Line, um, aptly named maybe. And Gilligan, of course, is one of our most famous criminals for many reasons. Um, look, his life has been extraordinary. His life in crime has been extraordinary. And... Last October, it took another twist yeah. when he was arrested in Spain. Yeah. I mean, the after, after all that he had done, and yeah. you would finally think that being as old as he is and the veteran that he is, that he would just, you know, maybe sit back and maybe try and lead a quiet life and, and that he'd had enough of mm-hmm. all of that, but, but no. Um, and, you know, while I thought that I couldn't be surprised by John Gilligan anymore, I certainly was when, when I read about him being, uh, being arrested again. Well, I mean, the, there was the arrest and then the Spanish police, as they do sometimes, because they don't always, but this time they released the footage, they took their video yeah. cameras with them when they burst into this villa in Torre Vieja and there we see him on the ground, 68 years of age, surrounded with drugs and a gun found outside the house. Yeah, it is remarkable actually that he was able to start up again. That's what surprised me is that um, having tried uh, to to get back into criminality and to, to inveigle his way back into um, criminal gangs here and obviously failing because he was so hated that um, he felt he had to go abroad. But I was surprised at, um, at his tenacity in actually succeeding and actually setting up some sort of a venture, a, a smaller venture than what he would have been used to in the past. But still, when you see the footage of what the, the, the Spanish authorities took um, took away from the house mm. and all that they have. It, it's phenomenal to think that he could actually get in at any sort of level at all. But he, he does seem to have made inroads. Certainly, he's he's brazen enough to, to keep trying anyway. No, it certainly is. And also, the you know, look, that world will accept anyone's money. Once you get you got money, you could actually, you and I could set up a little Breaking Bad operation if we so wished. <laughs> but, um, you know, basically... 
he, yeah, it is. I mean, at his age to still go out there and look, it's a tough world and, and to be, to be still muscling in. What he was doing was he was buying Zimavane, which is a kind of a street drug, a tablet sell for about a euro a pop on the streets here. The Zimos. And the Zimos, exactly. And, um, he was transporting them back to Ireland in the postal system trying to muscle in a little bit on the West Dublin kind of market where he has a couple of underlings selling from. Um, yeah, so, but realistically, you know, when you look at Gilligan, you kind of have to go back because you have to go back to the very beginning with him and you have to kind of follow his career to understand why a 68-year-old pensioner who should be kicking back um, forgetting about crime, never wanting to go to jail again, why a guy like that is able to get back into the business. Yeah, and it was greed from the very beginning. It, st- it started off as um, small enough ty- type stuff, but then, you know, it, it started to get wholesale then where he was uh, breaking into factories, um, earning himself the, 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 the nickname Factory John. Uh, stealing on a small scale wasn't profitable enough for him, so he started stealing in bulk and selling in bulk. And when when that, um, you know, it, it did supply him certainly with a massive amount of wealth, but then when he got wind of the amount of money that could be made in drugs, he, he ventured down that road, a, a, a totally different road than, than what a man of his, of his age might be gearing towards um, when he did start down that road. But certainly it was the money he was after. Always. It was kind of like criminality seems to have been in his blood. I think he was, um, he was an early school leaver and he started off his first foray into crime was with his father. So that's as much really as we know about his early background. But like, as you say, by the 90s, by the mid-90s, he was looking at the drug business and realising that's where the real money was. Now, in 94, he had been released from a prison term in, in, in jail here in Ireland and he managed to get some investment money yeah. from the general in order to invest in the general, being Martin Cahill, another very well-known criminal since dead. But... He um, he got lucky, John Gilligan, didn't he? Really, you know? Yeah, uh, he 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 kind of he, he did circulate uh, among a, a, an up and coming criminal enterprise, and uh, in in a sense, I suppose if you're looking at it from the outside, um, a lot of planets collided. Uh, to create a, a kind of a perfect storm in a sense in, in that uh, some big names that w- we all know now by those names like, um, you know, Martin Cahill, obviously the General and and others, um, they all seem to, to coalesce together. And at a time when when drugs um, were only sort of becoming um, embedded in <coughs> in Ireland and, and, the, and they were kind of there at the cusp of it to take advantage of that. Mm. And the General... Martin Cahill invested some money with him. So as Gilligan had the know-how how to bring in the drugs, but he didn't have any cash. The general invested the money and died before he ever had to be paid back. Yeah, yeah. So talk about starting on good footing, you know. So Gilligan was all of a sudden, you know, his loan was cancelled. Yeah. And yeah. he had the first major amount of money he'd made from the first shipment and it went from there. He had more capital. Yes. Now, you know, by the time he he put himself out of business. It was only 96. It was only two years. I mean, that's extraordinary yeah. to think, isn't it? Yeah. All that happened in those two years. Yeah, it, it was um, It was a very a very quick period of time. And of course, it was in, in 95 that he started 
building what would be um, the, the the big uh, the big trophy that 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 he would um, parade to the world, which was the Jessbrook Equestrian Centre. That started off as as a very small little investment in a cottage type of a house, a little bungalow in um, Mucklon near Enfield in Kildare. And uh, when they bought that, it was, it was basically a small farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. I, I'm sure the neighbours wondered why somebody like like John Gilligan from Dublin and, and his wife would, would end up down there. But they had plans quickly to um, to expand on that. And they started to buy up the land all around it as well. And the early uh, planning permission applications for, for the house in Mucklon were to demolish it and build a huge uh, five-bedroom very luxurious house with sauna, jacuzzi, games room and all of that kind of thing. And um they were, never happened. It never it? happened. They were actually refused planning permission. Uh for the and the only reason they were refused planning permission is because the, the usage of the land in the area was mainly agriculture. And this was deemed to be slightly out of step with what was going on around the neighborhood, even though none of the neighbours were complaining or lodging any any objections. So what John Gilligan and, and Geraldine did then was they uh, lodged uh, an appeal to on board Planola and in that they indicated that they were going to start farming cattle and this would be a way of getting around this idea that there was nothing of an agricultural nature going on but of course uh, we, we've all found out since that John Gilligan's money was was as a drug baron and not a beef baron but it didn't put him <laughs> off trying to keep going yeah. and of course Geraldine's interest in horses then was running in the background to this too and they had applied to um, to build a stable block on the back, at the back of the house, uh, uh, eight stables. And they were actually granted planning permission for that. But later on, and we've see, I've seen the, the aerial photographs of the properties and I've seen the plans that they submitted to uh, Kildare County Council and their planning applications. What happened in the end was the stable block was built and it was attached to the house and later turned into bedrooms. Oh, right. So in a sense, while they weren't allowed to build their luxury house, they, they, they did find a way around it. Yes, And yes. Uh, th- those stable blocks became became a big bedroom wing on the back of the house and it's connected by a corridor to the main house. And what then about, when did the the, the equestrian centre, because Jessbrook, the, the equestrian centre was built, you were saying to me earlier that you, you happened to be in the area at the time and you remember the trucks and truckloads of concrete going yeah, up and down the road yeah, it was build the, it. the summer of 95 was a very, very hot summer and uh, I wasn't working in journalism at the time, I was in a different career and I was working uh, in, in a factory near enough to where to where Jessbrook is, is built. And That's I remember, you remember the weather, is I remember the weather and I remember that summer and just, you know, anytime we'd be we'd be out, you could just see fleets of concrete bottles, the big bottles in the back of the trucks, you know, fleets of them going down the road and it, they seemed to spend the whole summer pouring the foundations for, for Jessbrook. And again, when we look back at the, the planning permission and the planning applications that the Gilligans made for Jessbrook, he applied for permission to build this massive equestrian centre and they had amassed all this land around the area too so there was space for it there and Kildare County Council I'm sure that the planning department were scratching their head wondering what was going on here because it you know it was of a use that would have been fitting to the area they couldn't really object to it but it was massive they had to take their time they had to ask for added information but meanwhile it was coming out of the ground while the county council were still wondering whether or not they would grant permission, this thing was being poured and it was coming out of the ground. And they, you know, the Gilligans were told that um, there was a house on the site 
um, and they wanted to demolish it, but they were they, they were told that not to demolish it. And um, so was this the bungalow then? That they no, it wasn't the bungalow. It was a separate one, yeah. house okay. that, that was in the way of the equestrian centre. Right, I'm um, sure it was bulldozed. Oh, then. it was because yeah. the inspectors went out one time to to see what. Um, what you know, they, they went out to survey the site and they saw that this house was gone, raised off the landscape. And it's just the Gilligans were, they were literally building it before permission was even granted. Mm, mm. And like it remains to this day, it's in different ownership now, we should say, but it remains quite a jaw dropping structure. It, I mean, it is huge, it is so massive, extensive, and it's just. It just screams wealth. Yeah, absolutely. It was a big vanity project. I was talking to one of the the, the people who who um, who assessed it um, after Cab eventually took it from the Gilligans, and they were about to put it on the market. And what's unique about it is that the um, the arena inside is so big because there's no pillars coming up the middle of it. The whole structure. Uh, is is held up by 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 massive steel frames, okay. um, which means that you know the 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 structure is so strong that you're able to have a massive area of open ground underneath it. The and arena. to yeah. to have this yeah. to have this size of an arena is a huge achievement. Mm-hmm. And I think if it was anywhere else, it could be successful. But by dent of its location and the road access to it, which is quite poor because it's kind of floating around the bog of Allen, it's um, it's it's kind of been this peculiar thing. And as you say, Nicola, when when you drive in that area and you see the little houses to either side of the road, and then you come along, and all of a sudden you just see this massive, massive structure that's not only tall but wide and in every direction. It certainly is jaw dropping. Mm. Now, all the while, Gilligan's uh, cannabis importation operation was doing very well. Well, by the time he was shut down within two years, they estimated he'd made 20 million. Um, He came to the attention of a former colleague of ours, Veronica Guerin, a crime journalist. She began to ask some questions about this wealth and where it was coming from. She had a contact who was an associate of Gilligan's called John the Coach Trainer. He was feeding her with information, but also feeding Gilligan information back. Um, she called down at one point to doorstep Gilligan, as we call it in the trade, and he beat her up. She was pressing charges. And this was the catalyst, really, that caused um, her murder because yeah. Gilligan wasn't prepared to give up all this money and this lifestyle to go to jail again. Yeah. It's easy to look back in hindsight, I suppose, and, and say, you know, that we should have seen it coming. But uh, Ireland was a different place at the time um, and nobody, nobody expected that. And even when she was shot in the leg at her house previously, um, that that was shocking enough, but I don't think anybody believed it would ever go further than that. Um, Veronica being being persistent and, and being being dogged in, in the pursuit of her of of, of her job. Um, she decided she was going to go ahead and that she, she wouldn't she wouldn't let this rest and and um as i say looking back maybe we could say we should have seen this thing coming because we know now the caliber of of John Gilligan and and others um who were operating in the criminal world at the time but uh certainly at that point in time in Ireland it wasn't expected no and one of her legacies i think is the way we all work that we work probably in a in a in a fashion certainly in crime journalism you work on the basis that anything could happen. Yeah. And you never work alone and all those other things. 
um, he murdered Veronica Guerin, or at least his gang carried out the murder of Veronica Guerin in June of 1996. And what happened after it was the most enormous crackdown on organised crime and on his gang. Um, he was brought back to trial in the Special Criminal Court. He was acquitted on murder charges, but jailed for 28 years for drug trafficking. A big disappointment that he wasn't got on those murder charges, but actually there was due to be four witnesses and only two showed up. Yeah. You and, know. And, and that, that's the, the, the type of... That's the type of ship he ran, and um, and it was really, as you say, the reaction to Veronica's death was was um, was massive, not only politically but but also from the general public. And within months, the Criminal Assets Bureau was up and running. And while Gilligan was away in prison serving that sentence, the Criminal Assets Bureau were working away to try and take all his wealth from him. And you know, all the years while he was away, those those. Um, those claims against his properties were were active, and um, that's ultimately what. what so the what cab led actually to got downfall. they got um, the cab got claims on his property. I think they started the case in ninety six. It concluded for them in ninety seven, but for twenty one more years he challenged them every which way. Yeah, he was. It was an incredibly frustrating process for Cab. But the, um, the 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 way that Cab went about pursuing John Gilligan was to use him as a case that they would throw everything at in order to show other criminals that a precedent could be set that no matter what challenges you make, you will not succeed. And it took more than 20 years to achieve that aim because Gilligan brought everything as far as the Supreme Court, lost his case there, and you would think that that's where it would end. But then he started to challenge the laws that were even used to convict him. And with free legal aid, he was able to pursue and pursue and pursue this relentless quest to keep appealing and appealing and just trying trying to thwart the system, basically. And as you say, it took more than 20 years. But now you have a situation where if any criminal comes to try and challenge Cab, the precedents have already been set. Everything that could be challenged has been challenged by John Gilligan. Mm. And criminals know now that once Cab come after you, you might as well just give it up because there's no point because you're not going to win. He, he kind of, in a way, made that legislation, that proceeds of crime legislation somewhat bulletproof. He basically tested it to the limits. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why he was so hated among criminals when he came out of prison. Um, he he was not he was not liked he was not respected uh, he was not wanted and ultimately had had to leave the country if he wanted to pursue any any criminal enterprise I suppose but certainly want he to talk did to test in a minute about, all the way. about that end of the line for him on the cab case because you had a very interesting experience with him but before we do that we should say that he was released from prison in 2013 from memory. Um, having served 17 years of his 28-year sentence, it was reduced on appeal to 20. To 20 years, And he yeah. got three off for just, I'd never understand that. But anyway, he got a few years off for the sake of it. But um, I remember the day he was released from prison and there was an absolute media mob mm-hmm. outside yeah. Port Leash. I remember feeling a bit, we were feeding this ego but yeah. you kind of had to be there as well. And yeah. it was just this, it was like 
you know, Kim Kardashian was coming out of the prison that morning. Every camera was pointed at him and out he came with a big grin on his face and he gave us a wave. It was just quite sickening. Yeah, he, he was he was such a household name at that stage because of, of all that had gone before him. And the only other criminal I remember getting out of prison to such media attention was Larry Murphy. Yes. Um, but mm. but Gilligan certainly, yeah, there was the, the grins to the camera, the kind of defiance, um, that kind of arrogance that, that he always has about him was, was certainly there. Um, and you know, a, a kind of a, you know, I, I've survived, I'll get on with this, I'll, mm. I'll keep going, that that kind of an attitude. It didn't quite work out too well for him. He did no. have a party that day and uh, he was pursued up to his brother's house by some members of the media who he then came out and gave some stupid remarks. He made yeah. some stupid remarks. He, he was always, and any time anybody approaches him and any time he does speak, which is rarely enough, um, mm. he, he would always still, yeah, to, to this day, he, he would say that um, the conviction... Um, the, the the trial for the murder of Veronica Gear and, and the conviction on the drugs trafficking was wrong, and that you know he he always talks about how could they convict me on on this evidence of you know importing cannabis on a certain date? He'd say they'd mm-hmm. have to nail that date down, and they don't specify the amount of cannabis, and he just keeps picking holes in it, keeps claiming he's innocent, and that he was right all along, and that and that he, he's the one who has been wronged. He's definitely not the type of guy you'd win an argument with. There's no doubt about it. He would just keep going. Just keeps going and finding something else. Yeah. So shortly after he was released from prison, he was shot. Um, Now that was a warning to him because he was trying to muscle his way back in, and he just he just seemed to believe, I think, that he came out and he was going to go straight back in the game because actually. While Cab had pursued him here for his wealth, they can only chase the wealth in their own jurisdiction. And before they started to to kind of go for him, before they were established, Gilligan had already, it was suspected, moved a lot of his money out to Spain mm-hmm. and had it squirreled away out there. Um, I know at the time when when Cab were looking at the properties in Spain and were looking for a little bit of help from their Spanish counterparts, he wasn't a big fish over there. They had so many bigger guys to be worried about that they kind of, they didn't have time for it. And I think he he managed to keep that money there safe for when he when he got out. Um, but he was shot and he realised he was in big trouble. He had to dip into his savings to pay for some protection. Yeah. He moved around halting sites in the UK under the protection of some of the McCarthy Dundon Associates. But he got better. And I mean, he, he came back and, and you had your interaction with him after that. Shooting. Yeah, if, if you see the photographs that were taken of John Gilligan leaving um, Connolly Hospital in Blanchardstown, it's an extraordinary um, photograph. Yeah, he he looks he looks twenty years older than he is, and he's he's in the wheelchair, and he looks like a frightened man. It's the first the first time mm. that I I could say that I saw him actually looking like he was terrified. He he left hospital before he should have. He he fled the country. He was on a ferry and gone. And he was terrified he was going to get finished off. Yeah, in the hospital, you know. Yeah, there was a lot of protection there from. Um, and when he did go, he, yeah, he he did disappear. And when he came back, then um, obviously 
the cab cases were hanging over, and that's what, that's what the main reason for being in, in and out of court was was these cab cases. And what I would do, um, trying to get any sort of comment from him on the cab cases, because I knew this was his last chance at. at success in anything you know and he pursued this for so long that um, everybody was interested to see what his opinion was going to be on whether he was going to win this case or not or whether he'd be able to keep um, the the houses that they had left there was three properties there was the first farmhouse um, in Mucklon that they had bought that, that's where um, Geraldine was living um, and there was another house in Corduff and there was another house then in Lucan so these were the only three things he had left that um, that he had going for him and he was going to try and pursue everything to try and, and keep them. So when there would be a court hearing, I would go along and I would approach John as he was going into the courts and try and get some sort of word out of him. And he would always just look straight ahead and grin and uh, he wouldn't even look at me and I'd be firing questions at him, you know, well, John, do you, what do you think your success chances are and do you think you'll win and what's going to happen? And he would just never, never answer. But I persisted and every time he appeared in court, I would do the same thing and approach him and just in, in the hope that maybe he might say something because sometimes he does and a lot of times he doesn't. And then on the day of the Supreme Court hearing, which he was to learn whether or not he was successful in keeping his properties. I approached him again and he said nothing. We walked through the grounds of the forecourse. We walked towards the doors of the law library. I was firing questions at him. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm. He just looked straight ahead. So I turned off my recorder and I said, okay, John, we leave it at that. And I went to walk in through the law library doors and I heard this voice behind me saying, 21 years I've been waiting for justice. And John was finally talking. So we went down again and had a chat with him and his son was beside him and he just kept on going on and on and on about the, the case where he was convicted for the, the drugs trafficking and he kept on mentioning the dates and the the alleged dates and how the guards couldn't pick a date between a six-month period and about the cannabis and generally faulting the whole process and claiming he was innocent. And then without even... Without me bringing up the subject, I suppose he thought it was going to come along at some stage anyway, but I didn't mention Veronica Gearan. He did. Mm. He's the one who brought her up in conversation. And he said that he often prays for Veronica Gearan. And, to, you know, when you hear that coming out of, out of a man whose who's gang were the ones that, that murdered her, and he's standing there looking up at me saying, I pray for Veronica Gearan. It's it's really hard to know what to do. And, you know, I, I just kind of I just kind of looked at him and I said, I'm trying to take this in. And we went into the courts then afterwards. And you know, this was a big case, a big case. This was big news. And um initially we're all waiting for the case to begin. There's a lot of media attention. Cab are all lined up. John Gilligan is there with Geraldine and his son, and they're all waiting for it to happen. So Eventually, the judges all come into the room and they sit down. A few barristers stand up. And you know yourself, Nicholas, sometimes with these legal cases, it's, it's hard to know because the legal world is different than our own. And it's not like TV. Nobody stands up and says, John Gilligan has won his case or John Gilligan has lost his case. It's all done in legal language. And barristers nod at each other and say a few things and it's all over. But what happened was... The barrister, the, the barrister stood up to listen to the judges and one of the judges said that, um, that the case had been won. 
And we all kind of reacted with shock and the barrister said a few things to each other and then the judges walked out. And we thought, that's it, it's over. He, he, he's won his case. But we weren't sure what was going on. So as the barristers left the court, I ran out after them. This is down in the four courts building and, and I eventually caught up with one of them. And I said, sorry, do, do you mind me asking, what, what, what happened there, you know? And he said, oh, it won the case, won the case. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I just wanted to be sure. And I said to him, are you telling me John Gilligan has won his case? And he said, who's John Gilligan? <laughs> it was a different case. I don't know what had happened, but there was some sort of confusion. There was one case to be finalised before John Gilligan's case was heard. Okay. So there was massive confusion. And I thought, well, at least I've sorted that out. We all <laughs> ran back into the court. But somehow, word got out that John Gilligan had won his case. I remember seeing a tweet or yeah, something about mistakenly, that. word yeah. got out that John Gilligan had won his case. And I think what happened was that Gilligan got wind of that because somebody showed him something on a phone mm -hmm. before his case was heard. And he seemed very, very confident. So he came in after this? He came in after this and... He, he thought he'd won his case, as far right. as I can see. He must have thought that somehow the media had got word of what the result or was. Mm -hmm. And that all that was going to happen now was was going to be copper fastened in court and he'd be out the door and he'd have his, his properties. Because the judges came in and they filed in and I looked at John and he was looking up at Geraldine and giving her a, a wink and sort of everything's cool, a big smile on his face. And then the judges announced that he'd lost his case. And his jaw just dropped. He was absolutely dumbstruck. You, you couldn't have seen a change in a facial expression to happen, to happen so quickly and dramatically mm -hmm. as this. And he had lost. So he was out then in the corridor. Naturally, cab were elated. They were delighted. They were all shaking each other's hands. There was a cab member who was actually about to retire at the time and he'd been with the case in the beginning. And here he was now near retirement and this was finally the end of it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so he had seen it through and 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 th they got the result. But then the word filtered out, obviously, that Gilligan hadn't won his case and um, he, he had lost all his properties at that stage. And, you know, from one, from the smugness, I'm sure it was quite nice to see that moment to actually, you know. Yeah, there was only a few there. of us in there. And, and I know there was RTE were there, TV3 were there. There was, you know, there was a, there was a lot of interest, mm. but there was, only a, there was only a small few reporters in there. And apart from that, then it was cab over ahead of us on the other side of the room, the journalists facing them from, from the far side of the room. Um, from memory, I think Geraldine was sitting up behind me somewhere and, John was at the right-hand side near the doors looking up at her. So you're kind of in this very old building mm -hmm. and you 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 know this is an important case. And having known then that 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 um, there's a possibility that Gilligan might think he's won this, to see his face change was something else. And of course, afterwards then, he pleaded poverty. He pleaded he everything to try and avoid mm. costs. Uh, he said... He looked he, for his pension, I think. Yeah, and yeah. Didn't he put himself on the homeless list or yes, tried to put himself on the yeah, homeless list? Then? Yeah, and, and he said all he had was social welfare mm. and there was no money. And he was basically putting on the poor mouth after that from there on. But there's this kind of smartness about him, Connor, that I haven't seen in very many criminals, you know. Not, not very many criminals are nice guys anyway, but 
there's a particular thing about him. I remember covering the the original case when he was being tried for the murder of Veronica Gear, and I was young at the time in the special criminal court. It was really quite. It was kind of exciting. Yeah. Like, you know, it was the whole place was locked down. There were snipers on the roof. There was fears that these two, uh, you know, members of his gang that had turned witnesses were going to be killed on their way in. There was absolute dramatics one time when a photographer got into a, a building on Green Street and took a clear photograph of either either Charlie Bowden or Russell Warren's head right, on right. his way in. And they realised, well, if you can take the photograph, yeah. you could obviously let off a gun, the, you know. You could be looking down the sights. Yeah. And they just hadn't realised this building was, was in construction at the time. But anyway... In the play, you know, you'd go in and you'd get your bag taken and everything would be gone through. And I remember sitting there and he was in the dock and from the dock, he would seek out the young female reporters. And across the courtroom, he'd make a kissing kind of a thing or he'd wink or whatever. And it was this, I was like, who is this dirty little man? Like, you know, but there was more to it than just that. It was actually this intimidation. Yeah. And that I have found over the years has always been there with him. There's all these little snide remarks out of the corner of his mouth. He might claim he's not going to talk to you as you're walking along beside him. But there's this little comment or, you know, something. And it's always this... I could do it again. And, you know, it was always this sort of... It's kind of, lack, I'm, I'm the man. Lack of respect to journalists, mm. both male and female. And, of course, he's discovered social media since and, and, yes. and targeted people, obviously, Absolutely, as well. including yeah. myself. Yeah. The Facebook site he had up, uh, which was eventually removed. But, yeah, you know, he has. And it's always a mockery and trying mm. to mock journalists and trying to, you know, mock Veronica Guerin's brother. And, you know, there's, there's this particular nastiness about him um, and obviously, you're supposed to be neutral, but he did kill, uh, you know, I didn't know Veronica Guerin. She she was a bit older than me. I wasn't working in the, in the, uh, in I&M at the time, but it's still a kind of an ex-colleague of yours and he's, he's murdered somebody. It's, there's sort of skin in the game with Gilligan in a way. He's a detestable little character. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the arrogance is the one thing that always struck me, that, that kind of arrogance. And he's, he's, he's not a man of any great physical stature. And I, I think maybe he's trying to make up for it in some ways <laughs> with, with this kind of um, arrogance. And, and um, he had an obvious wealth. And he was obviously clever enough in his day to, to see avenues and see opportunities. Uh, as you say, he was an early school leaver. He was, he was educated more... Uh, on the streets and in the the school of life, but um, you'd wonder if if the talents that he uh, that he had could have been turned to different things. Maybe he could have made a success of himself. But I think there was always that kind of an arrogance and that kind of a a, a desire to to show the the guards up and mm. um, the deficiencies. And for years, criminals could could wander the land with obvious wealth and no job. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to see now how they could have got away with it for so long and how the Criminal Assets Bureau wasn't set up um, beforehand and a long time beforehand because at that time there was a number of um, well, well-known now, but a number of well-known criminals making massive amounts of money with no obvious means of, of, of any way of earning it. And I suppose it's just Saad's law that the Criminal Assets Bureau came, came about as a reaction to something mm-hmm. rather than 
as an, in an anticipation of yes. anything that might come down the line. And unfortunately, the um, the reason it came about was because a reporter was shot dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. It's very, it's very poignant for that reason. The whole, you know, and the content, the future of the Criminal Assets Bureau as well, and you know that it, it is funded to keep going and that it's, you know, encouraged in its work. Um, Gilligan was in and out of the country for the most recent kind of few years we're talking about. Um, We had certainly in the Sunday world had reports of him being constantly seen in airports. Yeah, I used to get them as well. People sending him in airports. And we often get photographs in of him. It was him, obviously, and he was bearded, non-bearded, whatever. Um, He was moving around a lot. Um, I had a, a tip at one stage that he was staying in a holiday resort in the Midlands. And I, unfortunately, he was staying in a caravan at the time. And despite every effort, I didn't get that picture of him sitting outside in his little deck chair with his underpants <laughs> hanging on the line. That's what I was hoping for. I missed him by a hair's breadth. Um, but he was in and out of the country and he was caught there up in the north transferring or so they said, twenty-five grand cash. He did note in a, in 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 his possession with Zopiclone on it, which was these tablets. They tried to bring him before the courts in the north on the basis that this money was for the purchase and for the you know for yeah. for running a, a drug enterprise. He was obviously under surveillance, and um, he walked free from that court case again. Sort of slipped the net a little bit. But in actual fact, he was far worse off last October altogether because he has been caught literally with his pants around his ankles. Yeah, and if he he had been pursued in the north, maybe he wouldn't have been in a position to be able to go on in Spain. So is is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good thing that the Northern Irish one didn't work out and he was caught in Spain uh, with with all he has now? Maybe it's more damning and, and mm-hmm. maybe it will result in in um in a longer spell behind bars. But certainly you would you would imagine and we, you know we we can't um we can't predict these things, but you would imagine that um you know the the amount of ev- evidence against him is strong, and that it it could be it could be a long time before we see John Gilligan on the outside again. Well, they in Spain, and it isn't it is no holiday camp in the prisons in Spain. He's been held in a a very old and overcrowded prison where there's fears that there has been cases of COVID. Obviously, the prison systems are very concerned about that. But he's going to be at least six months in jail before he can even apply for before, bail. Before anything happens, yeah. Before anything happens. Mm-hmm. And realistically, he is at the end of the road and he is facing a very long prison sentence. Um, you know, away from the comforts, as some would say, of Port Leash. And, um, you know, what next? What can he look forward to next? He can look forward to a couple of visits a year, maybe if a few people go out and see him but um, it's sweet justice in a way Um, but Gilligan like you know his importance the legacy he's left for us is so many things really yeah and you know it it crosses a few generations obviously because he's been in operation for so long but in the beginning I suppose Ireland was a much more innocent place and you know Gilligan saw his ways of, of you know getting around security and everything and and um you know the, 
the legislation wasn't there to tackle him. Uh, the the, the guard and manpower wasn't there to tackle not only him but all the criminals that were coming up at the time. Um, as a, you know, we, we've mentioned Martin Cahill and others as well that that, that have been on, on the go. Um, in in modern day terms, I suppose when they started off, they were all involved in robberies. And they could almost be termed ordinary decent criminals. I, say, I think is a phrase that that has been used by by uh, Martin Cattle and and others in the past. But it was really when the um, when the whole drugs thing became strong. That's when that's when the greed really ramped up, and that's when um, people like John Gilligan and others um, really got involved in 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 flooding Ireland with. Uh, with drugs and especially heroin. And in, in the 80s, um, you could just see how the whole landscape of criminality and crime was was changing. And the legal authorities, uh, lawmakers, the governments, they were really only playing catch-up. Um, I remember back in the 80s when, when heroin started to flood the market and how it changed Dublin and how it basically ate the heart out of the north inner city and parts of the south inner city. And when you imagine that all these people that made massive amounts of money on the back of that were able to literally flaunt that wealth mm-hmm. without anybody coming near them or without any question, you can see how the situation would arise where when that greed was eventually threatened or to be exposed, um, that there would be a reaction. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the passage of time hasn't changed that. There are still plenty who would It's protect. just the only difference now is I think that yeah. they're getting younger and younger. That's it. That's it. So the documentary is called John Gilligan, The End of the Line, and um, that's going to be screened on Virgin Media on Monday night, 9 o'clock, for the first time. Well worth a watch. Um, and I think it'll be on the player from then on. So thank you, Connor. No problem. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>